0: Hey there, friends. This is Paul Carter uh, from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Orillia, the host of the End of the Word podcast and one of the facilitators for the Canadian Pastors Forum. This is the podcast version of that forum where we discuss issues of interest to the wider Canadian church. We're so glad to have you with us. Today, we are talking about liturgy. Uh, Obviously, to some in the Evangelical Church, just that word is a little bit dangerous. It smells faintly of Rome. However, in fact, all churches have a liturgy, whether they know it or not, and whether they admit it or not. The word liturgy just refers to the script or outline or general pattern for a worship service. And in every evangelical church that I've ever been a part of, there has been some kind of observable pattern. There's an opening, there's a couple of hymns, there's an offering, or at least there was an offering before COVID. We'll talk about that in a minute. And of course, there are prayers, there's testimony, there's a message of some kind, and then maybe more that's liturgy. So everybody does liturgy. The question is, are we doing it well? Is what we're doing biblical? Is it helpful? Is it thoughtful? Those are some of the questions we're going to be wrestling with today. And here to help me have that conversation, we have a fabulous panel. Let me just introduce them from west to east. Uh, We have Johnny Markle from Cloverdale Baptist Church. Uh, I don't know if this is actually west from east. I know Johnny's west, but everyone else is It is actually,
1: it, it is Markin, Johnny Markin. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I say Markle? I That's
0: had okay. Megan. Maybe I had Megan Merkel on the brain.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I spend not. a lot of time in England. So, you know, Hopefully we'll not. The connection. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thanks, Johnny. Uh, Johnny
0: Morgan. And, and this is actually my first conversation with Johnny. Johnny was uh, suggested to me as an expert on this topic. So thankful to have you here. Uh, then we have Paul Martin from Grace Fellowship in Toronto. RD Glenn, Uh, from St. George Anglican in Burlington, and then Jeff Eastwood, all the way out on the East Coast at uh, Grace Baptist Church in Charlottetown. So, brothers, thank you for being with us today. Great. Uh, I mentioned in the introduction the practice of offering. That was one of the obvious things that was affected, changed uh, by COVID. So let's start with that. In our church, uh, we used to pass the plate, and about 90% of our givings came in through the plate. Uh, people would put a a check inside an envelope with a little number on it, stick it in there. Some people put in uh, cash. We would do that as, as an aspect of the service. That's something that we would pass around, and then we would gather it up, and we would pray over it. It was part of the worship service. Uh, during COVID, where we were encouraged to eliminate contact points, we went to online giving. And uh, during COVID, about 99 point or I don't know, uh, percent of our giving was online. And then even after COVID, we have stuck up still around 80%. So we made the decision not to go back to passing the plates because it would be real awkward because nobody would put anything in it now. Everyone's figured out online giving, but we still try to pray for the offering as part of the service. Um, so just curious what your practices are. Uh, Johnny, you sent me a, a copy of your liturgy. Uh, it looks like it's for this coming Sunday from Cloverdale mm-hmm. there. And you've yeah. got something in there called call for offering. So could you just walk us through what, what you're doing? And then we'll each kind of comment on on how our practices align with that.
1: Yeah, we, we were not doing a collection up until about four or five months ago. People were just feeling a little bit still, uh, you know, there's a disease passing around or something, you know, they're a little right. uncomfortable, but uh, they decided, the leadership decided to go back to passing the plates, but... In the sense that they come down the aisles, and if anybody has anything, they they say, then they'll pass it. But they don't just pass it along the aisle anymore. Uh, part of that is you know you have some aisles with you know, like nobody sitting in them, and so two people at the end have to have a sprint meeting in the middle. But um, you, uh, it's really just a sense of ushers, please come and uh, take the offering. We'll receive the offering. That's about it's all it's said. We do pray for it, and 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 like you, I think it's important to pray for it, so it's seen mm-hmm. as an act of worship when, yeah. when we are doing our giving.
0: Yeah, I'd love for each of you to jump in on that, and because we're from various traditions, various regions, I'd just like to hear how how you guys are handling this. Artie, what about you?
2: Yeah, I think our experience was similar to yours, Paul. We had um, we had introduced different forms of online giving over the years leading up to COVID, and by the time COVID came around, I would say probably eighty percent of our givings came other than on the plate in some different way. So it was already up and running. And then it just completely overtook. Now that we're back, we do pass a plate. Some of the dynamics, though, that we've heard from people, um, some people are concerned because the plate goes by and they, you know, they're seen not putting anything on. There is that dynamic. But then there's also been concern from some of our members who they set up automatic giving through their banking um, and then their family and their children don't see them doing the actual act. Yeah and engaging in that intentional act of worship on Sunday morning of writing a check and putting it in an envelope and placing it. So I'm not exactly sure how we can address that, but that's one of the concerns that's come up for us.
0: Yeah. that. I, so to be honest with you, that's the, my biggest regret too. And I don't even know, I haven't even processed whether that's a good regret or a bad regret. Like I used to, we would put our, our money, cause we typically did cash cause checks were so expensive and we put the cash inside the offering envelope kind of turn it upside down and then I would often, you know, sitting there with my son or my daughter or whatever, they'd put it in the plate and I wanted them to hear the thump. Right. Because th- the thump is the sacrifice, right? Like th- we we're right. not going to Disney World every year because of this. And and it's important. And now do I mean do they even know that? Uh, it, my younger ones, I wonder they're not going to have that experience. I don't know. Maybe that was
3: wrong in the first place. I don't know, but I'm I'm still wrestling through that. Paul, what about you? Well, first of all, Paul, I'm just impressed that your giving resulted in a thump. There was and a gosh, thump. Just... Well,
0: we, we put some extra playing cards in there to add
3: weight <laughs> for didactic <laughs> purposes. Yeah, you know, our uh, our church is about, um, we're 23 years old. We have never collected an offering, and huh. quite deliberately. So we are nestled amongst a uh, part of the city that is ripe and full of prosperity gospel churches, where money is, um, I think, poorly presented uh, uh what, what the scriptures say about money. Yeah. And so it was kind of an act of um, low-grade defiance for us to say that we're just going to try to train our members to be faithful givers and um, we're not going to collect an offering during the service. We do not pray every single Sunday. We're a little bit negligent there. We wish we were a little more reliable at just thanking God for what we've been able to give. But for for us, COVID was no change. Uh, We had switched to online giving, which was a debate for us. We sort of ran through all that, the things you guys are talking about now. Uh, I think a lot of it is just sort of culturally informed. Eventually, I yielded to. I'll tell you, my giving is a lot more consistent now that um, (laughs) uh, it all comes out of my bank account as opposed to me remembering to put the check somewhere. So uh, I'm thankful for that. Uh, And that's what we intend to continue to do. All right. Jeff,
4: how about you? We kind of hit a happy medium because for us, we found that when COVID hit, we went to a number of different things online, uh, drop your gift off at the door of the church and then the offices, a manager could go out and receive it, all that sort of thing. But a lot of our senior members did not um, make the switch to online giving and continue to try to give physically throughout COVID and beyond So we actually had one of our deacons, who's a woodworker, uh, create some offering boxes. So we actually mounted them to the wall on either side of our church sign in our foyer. But we were finding week to week, without a mention of that, that it either got forgotten or neglected. Um, That was certainly evident in the givings that were received. So we now make it a part of our opening. As we open the service and before uh, announcements, we just mentioned that we have these offering boxes to collect the physical offerings. Um, and then also we have communication cards in the back of our seats. So for prayer service or connection, and that's also become the repository for that. And then our office assistant and office manager collects that every Monday. So we're kind of, bridging that gap, there's a physicality to it. Um, And it is, you know, public, but it's not the passing of a plate or something along those lines. And I would say probably 50 now, uh, or 60% of our members do give online, either e-transfers or, or other formats. So we've kind of settled into that before COVID, it was like 5%. So mm-hmm. it certainly has increased because of COVID, but we've kind of hit that happy medium here, at Grace. So
0: yeah. Yeah, it, it's, it's interesting to think about how we will teach this stuff. Because I mean, in a I don't know that any of us really realized how much that act of passing the plates was teaching. I think we th- we thought of it as worship. I don't know if we thought of it as teaching. Um I had a really interesting conversation with a couple of teenagers from our church a few months ago because again mm-hmm. their formative years, the years they were kind of becoming awake and aware in church, we weren't passing the plate and they a- they had assumed that we just received money from the government, that the government sent us money, that that's how the church operated. Mm-hmm and i mm-hmm. i it made me realize like wow they, the that act of passing the plates at least communicated like this church is supported by the offerings of the members and and you think all right somehow we're going to have to get that back um i don't i don't know exactly how we're going to do that but we're going to have to do it somehow right. any any thoughts on paul you mentioned you've been teaching on this because you've never passed the plate maybe you've got something for us there how are you doing this
3: yeah, just part of our membership process. And then we talk about our finances and we have five members meetings a year. So we'll talk about it there and uh, just encourage people. Um, we're just about to, at our next members meeting, we'll, we have a lot of new members. So just kind of reminding people here are ways to do it. And then, you know, inclusion in prayers and pastoral prayer, where we thank God for what we've been able to give is kind of a, a reminder that comes uh, at least a couple times a month.
0: That's good. I love uh, that. I'm I'm writing that down in my brain. Uh, more frequent members meetings. When we used to pass the plate, I used to do a little kind of preamble where I'd always say, hey, just so you know, we're not, this is not shake down the visitor time. Uh, this church is supported by, you know, the givings of the members. So this is for the members. If you're a visitor here, please just uh, let this this pass by. Um So in essence, we're only trying to educate the members anyway on this. So uh, maybe we can do that through the members meeting. That's a great idea. Hey, Paul, when next you share your brilliance, just make sure to lean into your mic a little bit. We we heard most of that, but I'm not sure if we got all of it, but that was really good. Thanks. Well, my microphone's in my
3: ear, so I'm not sure how I'll lean into it, but I'll try to speak more clearly. Well, put some thought into that anyway. All right, RD, you were going to jump in.
2: (laughs) No, I was just going to jump in on a couple of things. First of all, we've had a similar experience with new converts who come and they, you know, they see the plate going by relatively empty and they ask questions like, "Well, do do we get money from the government?" They also ask, "Do we get money from the diocese?" Right? And I've assured them that no, no, it's like the mob; the money all goes uphill, doesn't come down. Yeah. Um, But you know, like the mob, so many questions from visitors
0: can be answered that way. (laughs) (laughs)
2: that's a good that's a helpful analogy in pastoring but um in some ways the challenges have been set before us in this are nothing new i assume that you know at the point in the life of the church over the years where they went from bringing in um you know sheaths of wheat and goats to bringing in coins and paper bills they probably had a similar discussion amongst pastors like it's just not quite as tactile or representative of the actual sacrifice Right. And so maybe there's something that we can go back into church history and find. I don't even know.
4: Mm, that's good. One of the ways we've tried to address this uh, is the Sunday prior to the observance of communion, we observe communion monthly. We read a portion of our church covenant. We used to read the entirety of the church covenant, but now we, we preemptively do that on the Sunday before communion. So we say to our members at the end of the service before the benediction, here's the section of the covenant. This week, as you prepare for communion, be thinking about this. And the sixth section, the final section of our church covenant, deals with giving to the ministry. And then on that Communion Sunday, we repeat it before we observe the elements. So so at least twice a year, uh, we do address the the aspect of giving in that way, at least uh, prior to communion. But seeing it as an act of worship, I think is something we're weak on, and our region has been afflicted. I don't know if this is on other places, with an improper understanding of the right hand and the left hand not knowing what each other is doing. And, and somewhat even with the offering envelopes and numbers it would appear that the church secretary knew more about the giving patterns of the people of the church than the pastors did. Um, and so I think that is an education thing and we attempt to, we attempt as as with Paul to talk about that very openly as we onboard new members so it's part of the membership process and we have seen a change it's been incremental but you think in terms of decades as opposed to years as opposed to the ministry but that's it is having that that effect. That we are talking about it more as we onboard new people. So
0: this is kind of a side sidebar. Well, let's deal with it quickly because it's not really about worship. But I'm 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 just curious. Um, so I th- that's an interesting question. D- should the pastor know the giving patterns of the church? I, I, now in our polity s- system, I don't have access to that information, and it's never occurred to me to be interested in it. Uh, I mean, I know what the number are, is, like how uh, what our total offerings are at the end of every month. I get a report on that, but I don't I don't. See anything about what this person gives or what that person gives, and then I've heard other pastors say it's important for the pastor to know that from a discipleship aspect. So, uh, I'd be curious if any want to pipe in on that, Paul. You're shaking your head,
3: yeah. I never want to know what any individual gives, what we do is uh, generally annually, we kind of bailed on it through COVID is we ask our treasurer, our, is there a member who is given under a certain very minimal threshold? I see. And then if if we already know the facets of their life, we won't pursue that. But if it's someone who seems to be, you know, well-employed and they can afford their vacations and whatever, we'll have to meet with them and just say, hey, how can we help you learn how to, hmm. you know, support the work of the ministry? And those are often very fruitful discussions.
0: No, it's good. It's a good approach.
3: Anyone else want
4: to chime in on that? We do that in sort of categories. So it'll be like zero to a thousand, a thousand to five, say, or that kind of stuff. So I don't know what any single member has given. And I think that's probably for the best. Yet Christ did say that where your treasure is, there your heart is also. So in order to know somebody's heart, it's helpful to know what where their treasure is. Yeah. That's not exclusively money, but finance is certainly a part of that.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: And so similar to Paul, we just sort of read not red flag, but we want to know if someone is giving, you know. A, a, a pittance essentially is that's probably a heart issue it may be a debt issue or and then we need to talk yeah. about financial stewardship and those sort of things not in a sort of top-down way but just to come alongside individuals and we're hopeful this fall to actually onboard a an unpaid elder of stewardship um, huh. uh, from an elder perspective to talk about legacy gift giving and estate planning and those kind of things but also to meet with people he was a cpa for 35 years have those conversations because I think there are people in our congregation, certainly, and probably across the board who want to give. Yeah. But they're just swimming in debt. I mean, oh, literally totally. drowning. Like they're, now, they're we just had know. this
0: conversation the other night. Like yeah. we, we've had so many new people coming to our church over the last little while, uh, that you almost kind of have to give them two years to get to the point where they're giving like a regular Christian would, because they're coming to Christ with mountains of debt that that is just we we weren't dealing with that before and so it's going to take a while to completely change your your lifestyle patterns such that you've got room left for Mm -hmm. generosity all right we've probably spent too much time on that already uh let's let's switch to the topic of of communion uh or as some of you may refer to it uh, uh, more regularly as the the eucharist we um over the course of covid that was another thing in our church that really changed or was affected uh, first of all, when you're shut down, you're not doing communion. We'll talk about that, whether you guys facilitated online, at-home uh, communion. We did not. Um, I know some some did. But then even once we were uh, gathering again in larger groups and we were doing communion, it changed the way we did it. We went to something called the two-cup stack. We never got into the prepackaged things. <clears throat> I, I preached at a couple churches that were using the prepackaged thing. Uh, we did not do that. We just did the two cup stack, put the two little plastic cups together. So we did one distribution, and then interestingly, we have stayed with that. Um, our our elders loved the the two cup stack single distribution because it took uh, it took sort of the double distribution out, and left more time for contemplation. But I'd just be curious how did how did COVID affect communion in your churches, and um, how, have you kept any of those changes? So Johnny, why don't we start with you on that?
1: I have uh, probably the better paradigm for me to speak about the church that I was at when COVID hit. Sure. And um, I came over to Cloverdale about midway through COVID in 2021. But the previous church did not do communion online during COVID when they were holding online services. And I I theologically thought they they still should have because though we're not together in space, we're together in time. And if you were holding real-time services, you could do this. Um, that being said, uh, they have resumed. My, now at Cloverdale, we resumed with the all-in-ones, the little, st- the packet, you know. And and it, it, the wonderful thing that people have uh, culturally taken away from communion when you use those is the sound of communion. <laughs> you know, it's just That's, different. I, that was
0: my reason for not doing it. I said to the guys, it's like listening to a thousand old ladies open candies in a service all at once. <laughs>
1: And I said, it's, it's, so it's not,
0: I can't believe it's the Lord's will. But anyway,
1: uh, a few months, a few months ago, we, we went back to using the, the real elements and the trays and the passing out. And there yeah. was some consternation among some people, especially among elders going, are there going to be people just like with the plates being passed around that like, Oh, I'm kind of not comfortable with this. Yeah. So the first few times we did it, we actually informed people. There are some all-in-ones in the foyer Please help yourself if you're uncomfortable with passing the tray along the aisles. And then we even still say to people today, you know, they're, they're there. If you need the ushers to bring you one, put up your hand and they'll come down and serve you. Otherwise you get, uh, we, we have gone to the, the dual, the dual serving thing. And and I was musing upon this because my previous church was uh, serve it all at once. You know, there was a plate in the middle with some bread and actually we're using corn checks because they were gluten free and everybody crunched at the same time. So it was a similar issue, but RD's having a a heart attack. (laughs) (laughs) There we go. But the, uh, the the sense that uh we do it both again uh was taking me back a few years uh in experience but i thought about it and i thought about the actual last supper where the elements were given by jesus separately so in some sense uh though it takes longer maybe it's a a more immersive experience into the narrative of the time with the disciples in the upper room yeah interesting
2: rd how about yourself so we celebrate the lord's table every sunday uh in our worship services and we have a tradition of a common cup right so during during the covid lockdowns we did not do online communion for just for reasons of ecclesiology we thought that it was not good order Mm -hmm. um and then when people started to come back out to church we did a couple of things there was a progression of events in our church people come forward to receive communion historically they come to a communion rail and they're administered the elements along the rail either standing or kneeling hmm. uh, in the past it was bread and then a common cup that was white insufficiently maybe but white um, and then when we regathered um, we went from that to more of like a drive-through style where people would still come forward there'd be people administering bread and they they wouldn't stop at the communion rail they would just keep moving through and receive um, a small cup an individual serving cup We've now gone back to uh, coming forward to the rail, uh, but, but we've we've not reintroduced the common cup. Oh,
0: so you're still using like the little plastic cups?
2: Yeah, just little plastic cups. And interestingly, I think so that, that was actually that was an opportunity where COVID gave us a chance to do something we have been wanting to do for a while. Oh, okay. Um, you know, as our church has grown over the years, and as people have come from other churches and converted yeah. to Christ, they don't have a a comfort that sort of um, cultural comfort with the common cup. yeah sure and we wanted to, we wanted to do away with it anyway so it was a great opportunity just to do that.
0: So I, I went down to the Baptist head office once uh, for a meeting that I had there and um, at the start of the meeting the fellow who was facilitating it brought out this giant um, chalice, I, I think it was like a bronze chalice or whatever and he said, this is the communion cup from the first Baptist Church in Canada. And he read us the name of it, blah, blah, blah. And it was a big giant cup. And and somebody asked the question like, oh, did we used to use a big giant cup for commu- uh, a chalice for communion? And he said, yeah, that was common Baptist practice in Canada, apparently until uh, the Spanish flu. And then it was during <laughs> the Spanish flu where they went to the individual cups and most churches did not go back. So it is interesting how multiple times in our history, a pandemic has shifted liturgy. Well, that was very interesting. Paul, what about yourself?
3: Yeah, our uh, view of the church is that uh, we need to gather in order to be a church. And so during COVID, when we were not able to physically gather, we, uh, we put online chapel services. Um, we're trying to feed the word to our people, but acknowledging that we weren't truly a church because we were not able to gather. And because uh, the ordinances belong to the church, we did not celebrate either baptism or the Lord's Supper uh, when we were not able to gather which meant when we were able to get back together, uh, scrunched into our backyard six feet apart. We had lots of baptisms and we had the Lord's Supper every Sunday because we yeah, just cool. wanted to you know, commune with the Lord. Yeah, um, We've uh, returned to what our previous practice was. So like m- many of you, we would pass one tray with uh, bread on it and uh, separate trays with the individual cups, glad to get rid of the self-serve uh, single units. But I mean, they were good enough. We were thankful to do whatever. I don't really care that much. Uh, we we may introduce wine in the future. We're typically Baptist and have been using grape juice. I don't see much of a biblical argument for that, but um, that's something our members will uh, help us decide in the coming months. Well,
0: I'll, oh, Let Martin, me hear from Jeff, and then I want to that? come back to that. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, Jeff, uh, just give us a quick rundown of your COVID practices and, and whether you're keeping them going or have gone back to your pre-COVID practices.
4: Well, our biggest problem right now is we can't find Welch's grape juice. I don't know if that's been... Uh the uh, reality for anybody else on a supply chain of the, Paul, Paul has
0: taken it all and is fermenting it in his basement for future Baptist
4: <laughs> use. So um, now the wine conversation might cause me to lose my job or split the church. So we'll, uh, we'll take that one easy. But um, anyway, yeah. So we, we did not do online communion, but once we were able to gather in smaller groups in homes, we did pr- put up a online communion um, sort of protocol on our website, just to say, if you're gathered with at least one other family, we try to hit the middle road As with Paul, we believe that it's the gathered church, but we felt like as sort of maybe a mediating position, if you were gathered with at least one other family from the church, it wasn't just you at home, like with elements Mm -hmm. that perhaps that might be allowable, especially because we only have about 50 people in the auditorium over two services. So for those that couldn't come, um, but uh, then post COVID, we've done sort of a cycle. So you sort of stand up in your row, head out uh, the one way, go up and get the elements, both elements at the same time. And then uh, enter back in on the opposite side and sort of like cycle through three sections at a time. And then the other two sections in our church auditorium, Hmm. we've had a little bit of pushback because if you're not observing communion or not receiving the elements that people have to sort of like shimmy by you. And so that's been, you know, as with the offering where they see you or not see you give, it's sort of if you're not taking the elements, it's quite more noticeable than before. You can just sort of, you know, pass the plate. But I think for the spreading of germs and that kind of stuff, we've just kept that practice um, for a little bit. We have ushers and so if an individual is disabled and can't come to the front, those elements can be brought to them. Uh, we do uh, participate in the elements separately, so you know first the bread, then the the juice, um, but uh, they're received at the same time. So we're keeping that for now, but I think it's still in flux. We're just wondering. One thing is certainly the the speed with which people uh, receive the elements, which has enabled the, that part of the service to be extended, at least as far as contemplation and the reading of covenant, and those sort of elements. We went back and tracked. It was about 15 minutes, uh, top to bottom, with, with just reading the elements separately through the deacons you know, or the ushers. Whereas if everybody comes to the front and gets them, it's it's about half the, mm-hmm. the period of time. Um, so... That's just, uh, you know, one consideration among many. But it's definitely been a conversation amongst, uh, amongst the church. So
0: Interesting. Well, listen, I, I want to come back to the wine question in just a minute, but uh, just because this is related, curious if uh, how you handle shut-ins. So we, as I mentioned, we didn't do online communion. Um, probably It sounds like more for the reasons RD didn't than for Paul. I would say I, I don't think at any point we thought we weren't the church uh, because we weren't, fi- you know, all physically gathering as one assembly in one room. But— we did feel like it was bad order because there's a connection between communion and church discipline. I mean, what does excommunication even mean if people are at home feeding themselves and serving themselves? I mean, that just all of a sudden it just it loses part of its reality. So we just thought, no, if it's if it's not being facilitated by the elders, it's not, it's not good order. That that was our understanding. Well, which raises the question? Okay, well, what do you do? Uh, like even now that our services are still live streamed, we always cut the live stream before we do communion. So the first thing I say in our communion services at this point, we just dismiss our our live stream guests. We're thankful that you are with us, uh, and uh, we're going to gather now around the Lord's table, table. And then there's a pause, and then we do, then we move forward. And I, interesting, I had someone contact me who was, I guess, a first time watcher of our service, and and she said I was I was upset that you cut the live stream before communion. I had my my bread and my cup, uh, all laid out, and I was ready to serve myself communion. And I, I, you know, tried to explain her why do we don't we don't do that. But I said we'd be happy to send an elder to you, uh, if you're in, if you desire to be in fellowship with us as a church, and uh, and they could serve you. Uh, so we're happy to do that for shut-ins and for the sick. Just curious what what your practices are. You don't all have to speak to it, but if anybody has a a different practice or a different point of view, I'd love to hear it.
1: We've kept some of the all-in-ones just for doing such as um, hospital visits or yeah. shut-ins just for that purpose, and uh, I think I like your approach where it's somebody who goes to them and helps them to feel. I think this is rooted even as far back as Justin Martyr talking about the Lord's Table back in 150 AD or whatever it was, saying that the leftovers or the portions were taken to those in prison, those yeah. in mm-hmm. their homes who could not be gathered, but I like the idea that you had people communing together, coming together. That's a, that's a great idea. Yeah,
0: R.D., what's your practice?
2: We have presbyters on staff that go out and visit people who are shut in or haven't been to church in a while. Um, And they do not take elements from the church service that have been consecrated or set apart. They actually go to the person's home. They pray a prayer of consecration or blessing over the elements there with them and then administer communion to them in their home. All
0: right. And and is your practice... uh, Paul and Jeff, any different than what I've narrated? Any corrections or rebukes you want to deliver?
3: Yeah, we're pretty, I'm not going to say 100% that we would not uh, take the Lord's Supper to a shut-in, but I would say we're 99.8% sure that we would not practice that and take that as uh, a part of God's providence in a person's life. Um, And I don't mean to inflict further suffering on any saint, yeah. Uh, but an acknowledgment that um, the, the multiple times that Paul repeats in 1 Corinthians 10, you know, when you come together, when you assemble, when you come together. And then in, uh, you know, when that, that part of what we're doing at the table is discerning the body, which we would take to not mean the body of Christ, but the, the local church. The way Paul uses that in um, 1 Corinthians 11, back into 10. So our understanding of the ordinance is that it's a, it's a discerning ordinance for the local church. Uh, but I'm soft-hearted, and I could think of uh, particular instances, but what we would try to do is um, rather than send a pastor with a cup and bread, we would just try to send as many people from the church as possible, and in essence, hold a tiny service there uh, and be as representative of the local church as we could be with that particular shut-in or um, other person. So again, we wouldn't we would never serve communion at a wedding, for instance, or um, yeah. at uh, a retreat or things like this. We would be in that either. same category. Yeah. yeah, okay.
0: Jeff, any any differences in your practice, or do you align with something that's been said here?
4: No, I'm probably the closest with Paul. I don't I don't know of an instance in the 11 years I've been here at Grace that we've served communion outside of the gathered body. Similarly, we've had individuals um, connect to the church, ask, you know, should I participate in a home baptism? Yeah. You know, a father wants to baptize his child like in the tub or something like that. And, and we just kind of walk through that for us, it's, it's, it's a, it's a communal, the, the body aspect of it is just too important to the, the observance of the ordinance that it if it becomes personalized, it loses, I think, a lot of its, its intent for us anyway. So yeah, we're, we're and again, as Paul said, I'm sure there'd be instances, somebody's in a hospital bed or, or, or something where we might try to adjust things, but by and large it's it for us it's viewed as it's a it's a church gathered um, ordinance, both baptism and communion. so
0: okay uh, so let's just uh, take a minute or two on this or uh, I don't want to be too long here, but it is interesting. Paul, you raised the issue of wine. I've, I've heard others recently raise it. and as a kind of Bible first, you know, growing up in an independent fundamentalist Bible church and then only kind of joining the Baptist movement a little later. By and large, i I struggle. I want to know the reason why we're not we're doing something different than it's in the Bible. Um, and in the in the Bible, it was bread and wine. Um I'm imagining the answer we switched to or the reason we switched to grape juice it was out of concern for the alcoholic in our midst. um that and I, and I resonate with that. I mean, yeah, my heart tugs on that too. So uh, yeah, I, but, the same time boy i bet you jesus was concerned for alcoholics too uh so paul help me figure out this this issue because my head's been kind of swirling on this
3: yeah well i think you've identified it that quite clearly um what is wine in scripture is wine fruit of the vine is wine you can make a fine exegetical case for that so uh it's interesting to study the history and to go back to the late 1800s with welch who himself was Methodist lay minister. He was a dentist. Uh, and uh, there was a charge put out by the Methodist general counsel in the United States of somebody needs to invent a non-alcoholic wine. And uh, he adapted Louis Pasteur's pasteurization process to figure out how to make grape juice remain grape juice. Hence Welch's unfermented wine, which was made for churches. Huh. Uh, it's now obviously a huge brand, but that's where it came from. But what's ironic in that, in my mind, in the history, is that uh, the evangelicals who were leading the temperance and then later the abstention movements, uh, you know, calling for prohibition in the U.S., were insistent in the legislation for prohibition that churches still be allowed to serve wine at the Lord's table. (laughs) So even that movement saw that we want to get rid of alcohol everywhere except at the Lord's table. So... I think this is one of these areas where if you've grown up in a Baptist church, you've grown up in broader evangelical circles, you just sort of think this is what the Bible says. And if you take a little time to look at it, um, you find out that the Lord has really positive things to say about wine and some really negative things to say about drunkenness. And there's a way to enjoy God's good gifts and there's a way to abuse them. you know, Luther has some great quote about uh, man can fall into trouble with women. Does that mean we should banish the world of women? So if a man can fall into trouble with wine, should we banish the world of wine? Uh, that's not an exact Luther quote, but you'll get the, the idea. <laughs> so I think, uh, I think a church has great freedom on the issue. I, I resonate as you do, Paul, with, I don't want to trip anybody up. However, I'm also very aware that Jesus, you know, instituted this and, um, you know, such were some of you. Some of you were drunkards. That's the problem. And I'm I'm aware that we import a lot of our modern sense of alcoholism as a sickness uh, into our reading of the scriptures. And I just don't believe that we are smarter than Jesus or yeah. that we that have always greater insights. Too. Yeah. Trying to be
0: so, smarter than I Jesus think, or holier than Jesus always strikes me as yeah. a fool's errand. Yeah. Artie, you— do you want to comment on this? Yeah. You're from an older tradition. So it's maybe you
2: it's always been our practice to use wine at the Lord's yeah. table uh, for biblical reasons, for reasons of church history. You know, it seems to us that for most of church history, that's what Christians have used. Um, and also convictionally, because wine in itself, and in particular because of its fermentation, um, is used in the Gospels as a symbol of the kingdom. And that's not by accident. Yeah. Uh, so that's just been our common practice throughout the years. What's we're having actually coming at this from the opposite side right now, because over the last maybe three or four years, we've had an influx of people come from Baptist and non-denominational evangelical churches to our church. And so they've been raising the question, can we not provide a Welch's option? you know mm-hmm. and And so we've been wrestling with this as our pastoral team, and um, we've settled on our conviction, but of course, the thing that's always raised is the concern for the alcoholic. Yeah. Now, what I've found so far to date over the last couple of years, this concern has not been brought to us by any alcoholics. Hmm. It's largely been brought to us by people who would prefer for cultural reasons to have grape juice. And that's sort of a bit of a, you know, a ruse or something that they'd rather, you know, we must care for the alcoholic. So I have yet to hear, we have, we have a large AA group that meets in our church on Tuesday nights. You know, it's a hundred people that come out on Tuesday nights for AA and none of them have expressed any concerns about wine at the Lord's supper. Hmm. So I, and, and just the reason that we haven't done it is not so much convictional or historic or biblical. It's just logistics. Yeah. Like how do you differentiate it? And then yeah, once you've differentiated true. it, then you're creating this small division in the church. There's like the winos and the grape juice and, You know, I don't, don't, don't maybe don't label it it that way, but yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, would anybody like to push back strong against what, what either of these two brothers have shared or do you just want to move on? Nobody wants to push back. All right. Uh, Let's talk about something that is, um, I didn't know this was controversial. I, I, this is something I stepped in and and found out it was controversial a couple of years ago, um, maybe five years ago now, I just wrote an article back in the early days of TGC Canada where I was just trying to pump out two articles a week just to help keep the thing going. So I, I didn't probably do as much advanced thinking as I should have. I wrote an article called uh, Why We Dismiss the Kids from Church or something like that uh, and just shared our practice, which is about halfway through the service, we we release the children uh, basically as the sermon is about to start, they go downstairs, they have their own age, well, what we would say is age-appropriate teaching time, and then they come back. That was the way it was done in my little fundamentalist, you know, uh, church that I grew up in. That's the way every Baptist church I've ever worked in has done it. So I didn't know that was controversial, but uh, boy, I received probably more negative response over that article from the wider Reformed world than anything else I've ever written. So apparently this is controversial uh, in the wider Reformed world. Uh, so I'd just be curious to hear what your practice is, what you do, and why you're so angry at the rest of us.
3: Hey, Paul, you and I, uh, you and I wrote a little series back and forth on this, didn't we? No, no, we did. Uh, baby, to infant, dedica- uh, infant. Oh dedication. yeah, that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That got
0: people angry too, which I think yeah. is our spiritual gift.
4: <laughs> <laughs> we we uh, were. Having these discussions mostly for practical reasons, we have a 300 seat auditorium, and when you're 80% full, you look 100% full. And we yeah. are running over 240 people on a Sunday. So prior to COVID, we had the children uh, go right down to their program, it was a full program for the entirety of the, the service. Um, but as we reviewed that, it meant that the families were not worshiping together, so they came to church together, dispersed, yeah. scattered. And then sort of joined back up as a family at the end. And that's the opposite of what we were trying to accomplish. Um, during COVID, obviously, numbers, restrictions, that sort of stuff. So we're back at that point. Um, Easter Sunday, we had to add chairs at the back of our auditorium. We'll have 50 or 60 kids uh, dismissed um, out of you know service just prior to the sermon. So about a third of our congregation is under the age of 18, which is a, a huge blessing. But that has been a huge part of that conversation. It, we it would free up, so to speak, if I can just you know pragmatically, practically, about fifty seats for individuals in the main auditorium. But the what you lose in that, I think, is the children worshiping together with their families, Here, seeing their mom and dad and their grandparents, you know, worshiping God. So, um, so you worship for all aspects the sermon. Maybe as I well. didn't hear
0: that properly. Are you you're saying your your practice now is they're with you for the first part of the ser- service, so they're yeah. singing with you, but then they're heading down just before the sermon.
4: Yes. Yeah. For a teaching time at their different age levels. We have uh, okay, both four gotcha. groups of, uh, age groups of kids. Yeah. Okay. And then up to grade six. So once they're in junior high, they're in the full service. Um, yeah, all the way same. We don't have like a teen service, Um, but yeah, uh, that's been our practice, And we want to probably keep that. So we're just wondering, we're just kind of playing with that right now with that, what that looks like, but that's been our practice just so that they have teaching of a similar nature, but at their level. Uh, yeah. So that we're not lost during the sermon, I guess, is more where we're coming from. I mean, not that we're opposed to kids staying up. Some families have their whole family stay up for the entirety yeah. of the service, and that's completely fine. It's up to the individual family, but that's kind of what we've been doing.
0: Yeah, same. Yeah, we have some families who make their own decision. They they don't put their kids down. They keep them up. Yeah. That's fine. Johnny, what about yourself? Jeff. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Go ahead,
1: Johnny. Well, uh, the church I was previously in, uh, moved from dismissal partway to dismiss to just having the kids into their own area right from the beginning of the service. Uh, I'm n- no longer uh, thinking that's the best approach. I do like having the, the children in with their families to participate in the life of the gathered church yeah. and to see what, what, you know, worship is modeled by the parents. And I know we're, we model that back to our children when we're at home, but now we're doing this together with the rest of our church family. So I like that. <clears throat> and I um, mean, it's not. I think in some circles, it can be seen as babysitting. If I can check my kids in, somebody's going to take care of my kids, take care of their spiritual well-being, and I'm good. I can just concentrate on me for a little bit of time. And and I don't want to say that's necessarily a bad thing, but is that the reason why we would do it? And, And I think discipleship of the children has to be part of what we do when we're together and that can happen in the large group i think it can also happen as they're dismissed out for their own sort of unique style of teaching much as the catechumens were dismissed before the lord's table in the ancient church
0: hmm. so uh, johnny your practice is the same as what has been narrated by jeff and i then you're dismissing them right before the sermon
1: exactly okay
0: rd you were going to jump in there so let's hear yeah from
2: you. so we do a similar thing to jeff and johnny and that our children come in to the service they're part of the call to worship they're part of the worship songs at the beginning they then participate in the recitation of the creed. So we thought that was important. We then call them forward. We pray for them. We send them off to their classes. Um, and then at the point of communion, we invite parents to go out and get their children and bring them back in so that they can, if not participate, depending where they are, they can be a part of that celebration as a church. But Paul, just a personal anecdote. You know, I when we were thinking this through a while ago, um, I remember being raised in church, you know, a little boy, and I'd be sitting right beside my dad, and your dad always seems so huge when you're a little boy. And my dad would be singing embarrassingly loud, right <laughs> I was a little kid, and I'd be like, oh my goodness, like this is so embarrassing. And now, just even telling you guys a story, it's such a fond memory and rich heritage for me that I feel choked up in tears. Yeah. Um, there's something really important about little kids being a part of mm-hmm. worship, with the church, with their family. Yeah. At least to some extent. No, I agree. That's good.
0: Hey, uh, just before I jump to Paul, a quick question for you Artie. Uh So I would assume when we announced or when we introduced you folks picked up that you're uh, at an Anglican church, it's an Anglican church in Canada, an Anic church, but uh, being part of the Anglican communion, um, you might have an interesting perspective on this. Cause my understanding is uh, in uh, Britain, evangelicals and anglicans have a very different practice around kids that that in britain kids are generally not in the main worship service at all they right up until the age of 18 uh they come in and go immediately to their classes there there's no dismissal midway through the service like there in a lot of evangelical churches is that true i've been told that i'm just checking with you to see if that rings true
2: I think that that is the case Um, because the global Anglican communion is global. It has very different expressions in all of its different provinces. And then also different within each province and diocese. But I think that the common practice in England, I think that that has more to do just with, uh, you know, secular culture than with any church or Christian convictions Hmm. that they just, you know, get the little kids off before. Interesting.
1: I was in an evangelical church in England for eight years and uh, we dismissed the children partway. But we didn't have a staff of people to take care of them. So the parents, at least one of the parents, had to go and be with their children in there and be part of the teaching time. So it was almost a hybrid model. But what it meant was that my wife didn't sit through an entire church service for probably six years. Sure. So. And then, uh, Paul, any uh, any comments you'd have on this?
2: Yeah,
3: we dismissed uh, four- and five-year-olds partway through the service. So zero to three, we've got you know nursery, childcare for the littlest ones. And then uh, right up to the point of um, the preaching, we'll sing right before I whoever preaches, preaches. Uh, that's when the four- and five-year-olds would leave, but six and up, stay in our service. So that might be a little bit different than some others. Uh, that's very deliberate on our part. Uh, we used to keep them from four-years-old and up. We're not... Um, you know, I don't think this is a distinctive or something that I hill to die on. Um, I just, I love including something for the little ones in my sermons. I try to address the kids every week and uh, I m- know most of them by name. I'm still mm-hmm. catching up on some of the newer ones. I want to shepherd them and evangelize them. And I want them to feel like they're part of the church. And I'm just frankly amazed at what a six-year-old can get out of a complicated sermon. I'll be in Judges 1 with place names and geographical locations and stuff and I'm convinced that they're gonna they're gonna grab little little things that they you know they come and talk to me about and uh, and so I I think we sometimes undersell what uh, the little ones can pick up from the preaching of the word. Mm. So in our case they're through pastoral prayer, scripture reading um, a lot of our singing they're a part of all of that and then by the time they're six years old they're in
0: that's good. Well, Paul, I'm going to stick with you for just a second because uh, I preached at your church a couple weeks ago and uh, I was surprised slash intrigued by your approach to liturgy. We're both Baptist and we've grown up differently, but we're both Baptist now and we're in the same denomination. And yet uh, you have an approach to things, an approach to liturgy that seems to speak of some other influences. And uh, I I noticed a couple things. Uh, There was almost a... um, a mini sermon before each distinct aspect of the service. So everything was explained. Nothing, nothing just happened. Uh, you had an extended sort of call to worship. There was almost a, a mini sermon before each song, before the sermon, uh, before everything that was done. There was a very intentional uh confession of of sin. And then there was lots and lots of, of singing. I think I counted seven songs. So just a, a and again, that's different. I, I had preached at um, James North for for Duane, I think the week before, and their liturgy was almost exactly like Cornerstone. It was almost like it came out of the same Baptist cookie cutter. Um, and, but then I, I'm at your church and I'm like, wow, this is almost like a, I don't know, Baptist or Presbyterian church put in a blender. So help me understand where where your approach came from.
3: Well, I'd like to say it came from the Bible. That would be a bit of a trite answer. (laughs) But that would just be snarky uh, (laughs) and rude. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I mean, we would hold to what historically has been referred to as the regulative principle. I would say we would hold to the regulative principle somewhat lightly. And um, so our church would uh, lean heavily upon the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, which leans upon the Westminster Confession of Faith. Sure. And within that would be, um, you know, the, the regulative principle. Um, so we would maybe, it'd be interesting to hear from R.D. because uh, Bishop Hooker, I'm not well read enough on Anglicanism and, and Hookerism, if that's even an ism, um, which would sort of look at things and say, hey, if the Bible does not forbid it, there's freedom to do it. Uh, the regulative principle would lean more towards, we will do that which the Bible commands and really go no further. So where we would vary a little bit from sort of the typical regulative principle is uh, we're not holding solemn assemblies of fasting and things like this that were uh, more, more typical for 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 that. But I I don't know if we put something before everything we did when you preached here, Paul. And by the way, you preached well. Thank you for bringing the word to our church. Um, but we do want to be deliberate about everything. So. Uh, about a year ago, I did an entire service. It was bizarre, but I wanted to try it, where I would say, I actually stood like on one side of the pulpit and said, now I'm going to go do a call to worship. This is what a call to worship is. And then I would stand over here and I would do the call to worship. And I said, yeah. now, and I'm going to do a confession of sin. And this is what a confession that I would well, do. It.
0: That's what I was noticing. And to be clear, I want you to know, I, I didn't, I liked it. Like I actually held a meeting with our guys, our associates afterward and said, you know, I had this interesting experience, blah, blah, blah. I'd like to have some conversations about what we do and why we do it. Cause I wonder if we're not thoughtful or intentional enough about some of the things we did. Cause everything you did was explained and, and at, at some length, I I thought that was good.
3: Yeah. We'll explain it in our song. We hand out song sheets every week too. We like Ooh. singing off paper and not a screen uh, and that's deliberate as well. And again, no offense to anybody else, but uh, we just, we love people taking the songs home singing them with their family through the week, that kind of stuff. Uh, And we are trying to, you know, redeem every single second. So years and years ago, before we planted the church, we had about a two-month interval where I was visiting at another church, and I was amazed at the amount of scripture that pastor put into his worship services. Mm And it was very influential to me. And I asked him why. And he said, because most of my people have such a hard time reading the Bible during the week. I want to get as much Bible into them as I can. Yeah. And so that really just in some ways drove us to say, what do the scriptures teach? Mm-hmm. I know the Bible tells me we need to sing to one another, which means I need to hear you singing. And I need to be able to understand what I'm singing and its content and needs to be good theology. I know the Bible tells us to pray. So I know we need to pray in our worship services. I'm deep, I'm way more concerned about that in broader evangelicalism. You go to churches where there's maybe one token prayer before a sermon, but there's no true prayer with throughout the service.
4: You know,
3: we know that the word is to be preached. So we're doing these things we know that the Bible tells us to do. We know the Bible is to be read. Give attention to the public reading of scripture. So we train people to read God's word, to give the sense of its meaning. And we respond as a church, thanks be to God. We've heard from God. So these are all very deliberate things, some of which are from, you know, the Anglican traditions or the Presbyterian traditions or old Baptist traditions. Uh, I think we've shortchanged ourselves in large measure by not going back and reading what brothers did earlier, like Mm -hmm. hundreds, even thousands of years earlier. There's much to be gleaned and much to learn.
0: That's good. And and Paul, just so you know, I... um. I actually the, at this little meeting that I had with our associates I uh, I looked up on the internet the song of confession that you guys did you used a version of psalm 51 that was set to um what was the the tune it was set to again it's got uh, was it redmond I can't remember anyway I looked it up on the internet and I sang it to them uh to much much of their amusement uh but I I and I was like we we need to introduce this song uh it was uh, it was just great and appreciated. So we we learned a lot. We took several elements from what you did and and are going to look to incorporate those here. Uh, on that note, just and anybody want to jump in? We are kind of bumping up against the clock, but take take a minute, comment up against what Paul said. Uh, RD, I would imagine there's probably some similarities there. Uh, yeah, John, I was and, thinking
2: that when Paul when yeah, Paul was saying that, I thought it sounds like you're an Anglican, a <laughs> good Anglican. <laughs> You know, one of the problems or one of the tragedies in North American Anglicanism is that we become identified by the outer trappings and ceremonialism, when in fact, Anglicanism was Thomas Cranmer sitting down with the breviary and chopping out everything that was not biblical, with the exception of the Te of Ablonimus. In 1552, he's chopped it all out. Saying, Let's get this thing reformed in English. Um, and so that's really the beating heart of, of Anglicanism and Anglican liturgy. Um, We have this thing called the 39 Articles of Religion. Um, Article 24 says that it must be in the language, understand of the people. So we think that liturgy needs to connect with people in their language. That means more than just putting it in English, but in a way that they can existentially connect and understand what's happening. So we do similar explanations along the way. Um, And Article 34 says of the traditions of the church, they've not always been one and the same, but must be locally adapted. And so, Anglican liturgy at its best is not about formalism or ceremonialism; it's about the gospel in a language of the people, in a tradition that's not a barrier to them, and then reinforced in a way because your pedagogical conviction is that you're not only glorifying God but you're forming disciples through your liturgy. Uh, so, to that end as well. So, it just—it sounds like you're an Anglican, Paul Martin. Well, John, I am Johnny, not maybe an you think he's for. For good
3: reasons, Uh, but but I am a big fan of recognizing that our corporate worship services, the diet of corporate worship services is discipling all the time. And I know this having been in ministry for the number of years I have and seen people leave here and go to other places and just be completely disoriented by the fact that they never pray in this service. I can't find a church that prays or preaches the word, whatever it is, we're discipling all the time.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. It sounds a lot like the work of James K. Smith, you know, the the cultural liturgies versus the liturgy in the gospel that we're exposed to every week and how it forms us. And uh, I'm I'm out of a background of free church and Pentecostalism, uh, where I've moved into more word rather than more pneumatic uh, sort of strains of faith. But the biggest thing that I'm noticing is the number of people coming from those traditions and from the free evangelical traditions, where it's been mostly just singing and then preaching and and pray and go home. And it's sort of a very simple threefold liturgy, uh, revivalist liturgy, if you want, might be an altar call at the end. But the implementation of reading public scripture has really been something that has risen in a lot of churches that I've been encountering uh, just the, the sense that God is speaking through this word and helping our people to understand that this is God who's speaking to us and even that little reflection thanks be to God or we say this is God's word for us amen and the people encounter that it's this sense that God is continuously speaking through our service from the call to worship through to him sending us and so this holy dialogue is taking place between God and his people and the word facilitates that so beautifully.
4: Good.
0: Jeff, do you want to <clears throat> jump in on that to an extent?
4: Yeah, I think that's been a process for us, and a big part of it was um, intentionality throughout. In my tradition growing up, it was the word preached, you know, the pulpit was huge. Everything was with the word preached, but the word and all the other elements, prayed, sung, read, wasn't as important or intentional. Uh, oftentimes it would be Saturday night or early Sunday morning. Let's slap a few numbers up on the, you know, uh, board in the front of the church and we'll just sing those hymns and but the real focus is the pulpit ministry which i think the pulpit ministry is to be focused on but i think the whole time together is to, to preach the gospel and so our friend and brother pat's bell and even going to, to paul's church uh, for a weekend a number of years ago has really helped us more frame our liturgy so we start with the call to worship we have a time of confession we have an assurance of pardon we're actually preaching the gospel from the time we start our service all the way through mm-hmm. the end of the benediction, which is the commissioning out, and and so that that intentional liturgy has been a huge um, you know benefit to our people, and I think largely almost unnoticed in the sense that we we have we don't always uh, explain the elements perhaps and we should do that. Uh, but on the east coast change does not come quickly and so we just sort of introduced it without telling anybody <laughs> and now we think we've always done it that way um so but uh, <laughs> um i find it very helpful when the verses read on each of those sections of liturgy with the sermon being preached it key thought and it, it impacts and informs the verses that are chosen and so really the whole service then is a, is, a, is a package, not just these disparate uh, elements. And, and that's been very, very helpful for us to really think through how we do liturgy for sure.
3: Hey, Paul, I'm going to jump in and just yep. add, because I think something Jeff said there is so important, which is uh, it's, it's great when senior pastors are taking responsibility for what happens when the church gathers. And that doesn't necessarily mean they have to pick all the songs um or even how things are arranged but i think the better they can do that the more they're going to serve the church if the Mm. senior pastors the elders of the church are the most theologically informed then they ought to be the ones giving leadership to the single greatest important meeting in the life of the church so i've just seen in my travels uh which are not extensive but i've seen where you know there's the worship guy and then i'll just do my sermons and there's barely any connection between the two and so, praise God for this sort of growing movement. Um, you know, if all those hymns that we're singing, almost all of them are written by pastors or um, you know women who served in in some kind of broader ministry, they were theologically informed people, and and that's uh, that's also reflective in some of broader like very wide evangelicalism. Even the content of what we're singing, um, it ought to be looked at very carefully. But over <laughs> you, Paul.
4: Well, let just me to piggyback on that. Yeah. Sorry, real quick. Just yeah, yeah. Okay. this might be helpful for a practical standpoint is how our week looks. We meet every Monday morning as a staff and then I input the verses. And then I also, I do a little blurb, like a little paragraph. This is the title of my sermon. This is the yeah. passage. And then out to our music team leader for that week. And this is, this is sort of my thought pa- process about this text. They then choose the songs. I'm not musically inclined. Uh, but then on Friday we have our sermon preview meeting um, and then Thursday night is our team practice. But all the elements are driven by myself, even though I'm not musical. I couldn't tell you the difference between an A or a G or a flat or a sharp. But it it, it, it is that input intentionality from me all the way through that our music team leaders quite enjoy, I think. Because it gives them, as they pick them, the songs, what is the key theme of this service? You know, what's kind of holding this thing together, even musically? And I, you know, I think that that has been very helpful for us. In the life of our church here, so so even if there's a guy out there listening, he says, Well, I'm not musical, right? I can't do this. The that that's not part of the equation, you're theologically equipped, as Paul said, and, and that is part of your role. Um, even if you're not musical at all, like I am not.
0: Let, let me interact with that a little bit, Paul. I and I trust you're okay with that, and you're a strong enough guy to take some pushback. And first of all, <laughs> let me say, I, I mostly agree with you in the sense that, uh I, I also agree that at the end of the day, the senior pastor is is the worship leader and needs to um, be thinking c- carefully around how we're framing this element, how we're introducing that, how this piece fits with that. I totally agree. So, you know, I would say if there's any senior pastors listening out, I, I would say you should be either picking the, the songs or approving the songs. It should not just be left uh, left to others. At the end of the day, this is your responsibility that being said, so here, here's where I just want to engage a little bit. W- one of the things I noticed when I when I was at your church and that I commented on, I didn't good or bad, I just commented, is you are far more the worship leader on a Sunday morning. So I'm not talking about what happens behind the scenes, but on a Sunday morning than I am here. Um, on, on some Sunday mornings here, I may not do anything other than the sermon and the benediction, meaning uh, somebody else, one of the associates might give the call to worship. Uh, one of the associates might do the pastoral prayer. We have elders do the pastoral prayer. We think it's important to position our elders that. So I actually only do the pastoral prayer once once a month, and then it's it's on rotation. Uh, I I share communion. All the elements, are I guess, are shared. And our value behind that is I don't want anybody going home saying, oh, I had a great Sunday at Paul's church. No, uh, I want you saying you had a great Sunday at the Lord's church and i want you to understand that our our church has a broad pluralistic approach to leadership that i'm just one guy um now at, at your church you did you were you were the conductor um like you introduced everything you were you were the guy and you handed it off you didn't sing and i was thankful for that um but you ha- handed it off but you introduced everything so what what is the balance there How, i get i agree with what you're saying that the lead pastor has to be behind the scenes putting everything together but in the in the actual service is there a danger in being too central
3: yeah i i agree we're exactly the same as you so you were there on a sunday when i was service leader and the elder that was on the the diet to uh, lead in the pastoral prayer and scripture reading so i do a pastoral prayer and scripture reading at the same frequency as any other elder right. and okay. i have associate staff who would you know more typically lead very often um in fact I think this Sunday I'm just preaching a sermon that's all I'm doing.
0: Okay and so that so was we, just a bit of
3: an odd Sunday in that sense. Yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Anybody else want to comment on that like the role of the senior pastor in orchestrating overseeing the the liturgy on a Sunday morning.
1: As the worship director As the worship director and not being a senior pastor in a church, uh, I work very closely with Rod. Uh, We have a planning time every Tuesday where we look at the previous service, the new service coming up, and the services to come uh, uh, weeks down the road. And so our team gather that way. But we're also, he's giving us his sermon series long before. And then we we have a song selection committee to, to have a pool of songs to go from that he's looked over and said yep i'm i'm good with all of those and then he's uh he's, there's an element of trust that if we're well equipped and and well discerned in how to fit music into services he just hands that over to us but ultimately uh, i know that i answer to him so his involvement is the responsibility too but uh, i think when a when a mm-hmm. worship pastor and a lead pastor work in tandem very very well an element of trust can be built that's good.
0: I, I I want to bring it in for a landing, but before we do, there's one more little piece of information I just want to get from each of you. We want to try and be as useful as possible to our listeners. So try and answer this one in two seconds. And I think it's you're capable of it because it's a, it's a pretty simple question. How many songs would you have in a typical worship service? Johnny, why don't we start with you and we'll just go right around the horn.
1: Five.
0: RD? Seven. Jeff?
1: Uh,
4: five or six. Okay. Paul? Six.
0: Okay, yeah, we're five. Yeah, now, as I said, I think there were seven the week that we were there, but that may just have been un- unusual. Interesting. All right, well, I wish we had more time to talk about that, and maybe we should. Maybe we should take another uh, podcast and do this again. One of the questions I wanted to ask was, um, I was going to ask Johnny, what is gospel-shaped liturgy? Walk us through that. I've I've heard that explained a few times by people who are um, uh, passionate about that model. It sounds similar but not identical to what we do here so i was i was curious about that maybe we'll do this again cuz we also didn't get to speak a, a great deal about baptism how we do it when we do it uh i thought that would be an interesting conversation not to argue with with uh, our anglican friends cuz that wasn't the point but uh, i'm i'm interested <laughs> uh, in argue. Yeah, we will. We may anyway. But interested in in conversations about how that's positioned in the liturgy, where you think that should happen in the life of a convert. I, I had a really interesting conversation with a Baptist pastor about the earliest age we would baptize somebody. So anyway, uh, great conversation, perhaps for another day. Uh, we are planning to be back again, God willing, next month. Uh, We've got some things planned, and uh, we'll let you know about that in advance. Thanks again, brothers. I appreciate you being with us, and uh, listeners too. We appreciate your time, and uh, we'll be back again with you, God willing, next month. Until then, take care, and God bless.